0: Technically, it's not a story, it just gives very, just the scare, the skeleton of a story. Um, And so for us here, in the year 2010, we we just have to dig and unearth some of the Jewish things that are are sort of buried behind it in the story, so sort of of bearing that in mind. Um, My remit this morning is to actually to talk about Naomi. John's remit last week was to do an overview and um, you might see if you look at the list, no you won't because you haven't got a list, So um, <coughs> um, that we're talking about Ruth, Naomi, Boaz but not about Elimelech and, and I think that he should be put in that list but I'm in that position to be able to do that and so I'm going to uh, say a little bit about the man this morning. Um, you obviously looked, and John read from last week the last verse in judges, which was in those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as he saw fit. That was an epoch in the time of israel 's history, but it 's also the spirit of the age in which we now live, um, confirmed by the fact that um, I did it my way by um, forget what the name of the singer was now. <laughs> Sinatra. Yes. Well, oh, there you go. Sinatra is the most popular song chosen at funerals. Um, so um, it actually, it actually says something, doesn't it? That each man does what is right in his own eyes. Not for the people of God, because we just seek, try to seek, to pursue a better way, and that is to live our lives in, in, in the fact that God has given us a better way to live. And God has given us a hope in what we do in this life. Uh, not just for this life, but it goes on into eternity. Praise God for the hope that He has given to us. And so I look at Elimelech and I say, is this Jewish, this lovely Jewish man, going down the same road as the other people in his life? Maybe with no king and no one to rule the situation and things get out of hand? Is this the thing that's sort of increasingly growing in the community? And particularly thinking about the Jewish community, who were to be a people focused on God, who had been given all the oracles of God, given the ways of God, the understanding of God, to be blessed and to bless the world. Was this an undermining thing? that was getting into the heart and to the mind of Elimelech. It was a testing time, John reminded us of that last week, a testing time, a time of famine, a time of difficulty. And John brought out the fact that, yes, it was a time of difficulty and there was suffering because of that and related it to the fact that, yes, there are people in our community here and and also the church community in Heron Bay who've gone through immense times of suffering and difficulty and trials And sometimes we try and weigh that up about the the things that God, the promises God has given us, you know, that God will protect us and keep us. And it's even been mentioned it this morning, you know. But the times that God just lifts off the covering and takes away the protection around to do something which has a greater purpose to it. And this is what we find in this story. A time of famine. We know why the famine cut was there, because the people were generally disobedient. And... um, in Jewish terms, I just want to read this. In the days when, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the very fact that the writer says gives us their names Right? is, is significant. And the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilion, They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. Later on in the story, you will read that when Naomi came back as a widow and came back with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, the whole city was stirred. That could be just a passing phrase, the whole city was stirred. What do you think it was like when they left? Here's an upstanding man, a genuine Jewish family. He was a man of significance in his community, probably a large landowner like his, um, his, his kinsman Boaz. And they get up and they leave Bethlehem, the town of promise, the town of provision, the town of blessing, and even though it's a time of famine, they get up and they leave. Do you think the whole town was stirred then too? It doesn't tell us that, but I believe the whole town was stirred at that time. Significant man in that community and his family, they get up and go. So just in the sense of family, and just in the sense of community, they get up and they go. Now, I'm not in the place of condemnation to condemn uh, Elimelech for what he did and his family. It was a time of famine, and if you read the commentaries of the Bible on this story, some comment- commentators will actually will, will say that, yes, he did the right thing in taking his family somewhere else so that they could be looked after and provided for. And that may be true. But then there's other commentators who say that, um, well, whilst he did that, he did the thing which wasn't the best thing. And he got up and he left. There were actually other places, Jewish communities, a bit, for, a bit more far off than that, that they could have gone to that had food. But they went to a place to a country which was actually an enemy of the Jewish people, an inhospitable people. In actual fact, one commentator said, it's the antithesis of hospitality in Moab. So they went from a community, which was the hospitable community for them, even though there was a famine there, and they got up and they left and they went to Moab. And even for the sake of going to Moab, because God wasn't God there, they served other gods. It was not the best choice to make. But even more so for the sake of their two sons. Here's a genuine, genuine uh, couple of sons in a genuine Jewish family being taught the ways of God. We take that for granted, being brought up in a way, a godly way. And they're taken out from under that covering. To be brought up in a different society, in a different people. Not the best choice for a Jewish man as the head of his family. And so it's in that sort of context that we, this story unfolds. I said it's not a story in literary terms that not qualify to be a story. But it qualifies to have a place in the Bible, in the whole context of what the Bible is, and that's to serve God's purposes and to bless mankind, and that's why it's there. Insufficient background information, written by Jew for Jews, much of the background information is understood only in the terms of what Jews generally knew, and their respected theologians, priests, etc., and the scribes. So if we want to learn from this book, we have to seriously look at the names, look at why names aren't there, the different places where the names of places and the names of people are actually withdrawn. And I'll give you an example of that. Right in the very first part, it says, a man from Bethlehem. So at that moment, it doesn't say Elimelech from Bethlehem. It says, a man from Bethlehem. So it unnames the man first. Why? Because it's put in the priority on Bethlehem, saying, From Bethlehem, he left Bethlehem. I just want to just refer, make a point here about church life. <clears throat> Some people, they get up and move out of a church for a reason that's upset them. And the thing never heals. If you're on the move, you will be, if you leave a church to be on the move, you will always be on the move. Because you've taken yourself out of the covering of what the church really represents. The idea of family, the idea of community, and in a sense you're making a statement that I have no fellowship with that particular situation. Or maybe someone's upset me. Or maybe someone doesn't talk to me. Or maybe I don't feel at home there. We have to look at Elimelech and say, really, what was at the heart of it? What was in his spirit? Was his heart really for God, or was there some other desire to get out? Bethlehem is the house of provision. That's in God's terms. If we truly trust in God's supply, God's provision... We should not move away from that. I mean, my experience of Ruth being preached on over the years has always been related to the church. Maybe it's been overdone sometimes, I don't know. I mean, I know some people, I mean, typology is quite a good, interesting thing in the Bible, but as I've said before, sometimes it's turned into tripology. And that's quite easily, quite an easy thing to do. You can just overdo it. And I've withdrawn from looking at names and situations in this passage because I don't really want anything to do with that. But it's one of those books, you have to look at the names to get the background information, whether it be places or people. And then you try and get an understanding. Elimelech's name... If you read in the ordinary sort of situation, it says, God, God is my king. If you look at it in the Jewish terms a little bit deeper, it says, may kingship come to me. Now, if you think of that in the terms of the whole situation there, David becoming king was only what, three, four generations down the road. And what was it he read? In those days, Israel had no king. So do his parents look at him lovingly and understandingly and prophetically and say, Elimelech, may kingship come my way. Who's going to be our would-be Dorothy? <coughs> Who's going to be our Joseph? Joseph? in the terms of what's going on on TV at the moment. Maybe they looked at their son and said, yeah, there's a chance that my child could be king. Now, if you think of Elimelech getting up and leaving his situation when he had all that land, that maybe he could even try to develop, to provide food for his own people in his own situation. The summary in Jewish terms of the first two verses is in all things the story that I'm now going to write about was a tragic mistake. That's the summary. This is the history of a family's life which had become a tragic mistake. So, in a sense, we have to look at it a little bit like that. But then we also read it, as we read through right to the end, this is a story of the power of God's redeeming grace being worked out in people's lives who had become a tragic mistake. And just to bring some of the end bits to the forefront, God has given the church the ability, all the issues, the all the things that we have, the positive things about the kingdom of God, to use them to work out God's redeeming purposes. The, the verse from Romans, will, which we all know, which we love to quote when we're going to Diffy, that all things work together for good to those who love God. That's an act of God's redeeming grace. How that God takes people's lives, whether they're an individual mistake whether their lives have become a mistake because of the situations they've been in brought on by other people. But God takes mistakes and he turns them round so that they can become a blessing. One of my old cohorts used to say God's purpose in all divorces is for the original people married to get back together. You think of the impossibility that would be there in that. The impossibility. No, it doesn't work like that. We live in life, in real situations. And people own up and say, yes, my life's a mess because I made a mistake. And if our life has been a mistake, God's lovely comes to us and says, I see your mistake, but I just want to help you get out of that. I want to make a difference. I want to actually, what I want actually to do is to put your story in history and make it become a purpose, which is what happened here. It actually became his story, God's story, the fact that these, this family had made a mistake, and now God had brought it round, to actually bring so much good out of it. Because we know that Matthew took it up and said, now look, you know, this is all about David, actually. It's all about kingship. It's all about my coming king. It's all about my king on whom the government will rest for eternity. We'll never His kingdom will never end. So there's Elimelech and, yep, we see the folly of the man. He's the head of the family. He's the one that makes the decisions. He's a man of stature. He's a man of wealth. He's a landowner and he moves out from Bethlehem the house of provision. We don't want to lay that condemnation on him because it was a very difficult time. But I just want to see that very often we're put in compromising situations and although we might choose the wrong, we can still use the best. We can follow the best. I want to relate to you a little story of my life, which I'm sort of half ashamed to tell you, but um, when, when we first married, we was given... I was made treasurer of my little local church community. And so we, we sort of took, took the cash home, and we looked after it, banked it when we could, and we did all those sorts of things. And um, life got very difficult and tough at times, And so we borrowed the old fiver and then put it back later. And um, I'm not saying there's any particular sin in that. I don't feel any particularly guilt in that. In fact, I feel ashamed about it now a little bit. But um, I feel ashamed in this fact of my mother. She told me a story the other day. She said um, way back, she was thinking back in the past, which she tends to do these days. um, We all do when we get older. (laughs) My dad was the treasure previously. And um, he used to look after, after the money. And, um, and and she said, that she, she was telling me this story, how that um, she was uh, paying for an insurance policy for me, um, paying a uh, shilling a week to the Salvation Army. Now, the man used to come to the door dressed in his uniform, and he used to collect a shilling every week um, for me. So you know, I had a little bit of money when I got to a te- teenage state. And uh, she said this to me, she said, um, she said, Mr. Miskin came to the door on Friday, she said, and I just hadn't got any money in the house. And she said, I was not going to touch the Lord's money. She said, I was not going to touch the Lord's money. I don't know that's just maybe an old-fashioned way to look at it. No, but it's the Lord's money, because all money is money. She said, I wasn't going to touch the Lord's money. And Mr. Miskin knocked at the door... <coughs> But in the back door came my uncle Barney. <laughs> and he said, "Right, right, Mrs. Smith's giving me a shilling. Do you want it?" <laughs> Which just slightly illustrates the story. Sometimes you might take the easy option, but there's always strength in doing what's the best thing. And maybe Elim like was in that situation. We don't know. And so it tends us to consider our ways before the Lord and the things that we do. If we're prepared to prove God and to trust him, he will not let us down. And from those simple, folly days of our early married life, God has proved. God has proved his provision for us. There was one day we were going on holiday, we had all the holiday arranged, Margaret's parents had Paid for most of it, and I had no work whatsoever, no work whatsoever. It was actually dried up, and um, so I thought, what can I do? So I tried to get work, couldn't do that, and then um, I thought, well, I'll clear the shed out. So I cleared the shed out, got the rubbish, stuck it in the back of the van, took it down the dump or the tippers we used to call it then. It used to be a few, just a few skips along Sturry Road there where the car park is now. I unloaded my rubbish into the vat, into the skip, and there was my first boss I had when I'd left school. Oh, hello, how are you? How are you getting on? I said, fine. No problem at all. said so I'm working for myself now. Oh, he said, wouldn't like a job, would you? And so that sports centre that's behind um, up there around the back of the houses near the barracks there I wired that out and uh, God started and he amazingly provided if we're prepared to prove God and so we're looking at Limla I'm supposed to be speaking about Naomi and so we will go on to her in a minute but a little bit more about the names before we do I just want to look at the names of their sons. Marlon means sickness. And Kilion means decimation. There is a suggestion. There is a su- when you think of Naomi, what her mind means pleasantness. But when you think of that, wow, here's a Jewish couple, could they give their children names like that? I don't, I don't think they could have done that. But there's a story in Chronicles, which is roughly the same as this, and they suggest that their names had been changed, their boys' names had been changed from what they had been originally given. You'll say, why would they change them to that? Was this their experience in Moab? Sickness and decimation? Now, a lot of this is we're just sort of trying to work it out, and it's not concrete fact as such. But if we think about it just for a moment. Because Bethlehem had that significant name, Elimelech had that significant name, Naomi had that significant name of pleasantness. And here's a couple of names. And we can go on like that, looking at names. So what is writing this story and unfolding this, what, what is the intention of the writer? The book's called Ruth. John said last week the most significant character in this book is Naomi. And it's it called Ruth? Maybe just God? People just want to say, Ruth, you know? Here's this illegal immigrant from Moab who comes into Israel and God raises her up to be a significant woman in history, part of the ancestry of our saviour, Jesus Christ. A tremendous story. A tremendous story of redemption. But here we are, Naomi. The account mainly exposes her role as a mother-in-law. And it's not very often in church you get sermons about Mother-in-laws, is it? Have a nice smile, Janet. it? But I'm not speaking to you, dear. I know you're the most recent mother-in-law here. But it's, <coughs> it's a role in life. It's a place in life that God has placed us. God loves families. God loves marriage. It was his creation. And so it must be that God loves mother-in-laws. And he's placed them in society for a specific and wonderful reason. And Naomi comes forth as a mother-in-law. I just want to think about Naomi for a few moments. The account exposes her as a mother-in-law. As a wife and a mother, it doesn't say anything. But as a mother-in-law, it says a lot. Because that's what she had become in this particular story. A mother-in-law to a young girl from a foreign land who, was, who had become her daughter-in-law through marriage. Mother-in-law, father-in-law. It's a relationship which should be a relationship of love and grace in the purposes of God and should be thought about as a high priori- priority in God's calling. Because the time comes when you actually change your role in a very significant way, in the way that you treat your own children, for a start, in the way that you release your children and you actually put yourself in the place of being responsible for them both, not just one or the other. I go into many people's houses, some not so good as others, and I watch how people react to their children. I watch how and I listen how they how they react. You know, just they react. A lot of it is just like what you see on television. I see And a lot of it isn't. A lot of good stuff out there. So just a few words of wisdom. Show as much concern and interest for your child's spouse as you do for your child. There are two ways you can do this. You can either almost isolate your child's spouse or your son-in-law or your daughter-in-law and keep focusing on your child so that it actually tends to cause a division between the two. Show as much concern and interest for your child's spouse as you do for your child. Do not in any way try to come between them. Treat them as together, as a partnership, as a married couple. We've come this way and it's so easy. Especially if you've got son-in-laws, little bits of their character you don't like. But these are just words of wisdom. Show respect to them, even if they appear immature or unconcerned about things that you might be concerned about. Earn their respect so that you can get to communication level. Because there's many family situations where one person not speaking to another. And you know, you don't put your situation to want to speak to them. You just want to keep out of the way. Respect them as much as you can get to communication level. Now, I believe somewhat that Naomi was a victim of her husband's folly, but she did not live or impose any sense of victim mind towards her daughter-in-law, like this. You have lost a husband, but I lost a son. I bore him for nine months and held him in my arms. I held him close to my breast. It's worse for me. We don't read, we're not given all the full facts, but we have to assume that what Ruth found in Naomi's character was something she wanted. I'm sure if Naomi had a victim mentality that she was actually characterising someone else, her daughter-in-law with, they wouldn't have wanted anything to do with it. It's just a danger point, isn't it? Sometimes, if we're the victim in a situation, how we try and put that over. Now, Jesus told a story about forgiveness. And it was that point of it that the guy didn't get. All his debts cancelled, he was a victim of a debt situation but then he went out and took a man by the throat and said you're my victim and you're going to stay my victim and he wouldn't forgive him and so we read that the tormentors came in, they sent the tormentors into him and so in a sense there was torment in his experience because he didn't actually pass on the grace he'd received. If God has given us grace, whether it's forgiveness, peace, blessing in any sort of way, God expects us to pass that on. And we've received forgiveness from God, we need to pass it on. But here's something she didn't need to pass on. She was a victim in a situation, but in no way did she appear to pass it on. She was a bereaved wife, but she did not carry the influence of this to others. It's all right for you. You're young, and you can get yourself another husband. But for me, I'm old. I'm, you know, like she said just a little bit later, I'm really past the age of getting married and having children. So she could have said, it's all right for you. I'm a bereaved wife, but she didn't carry that influence of this to others. It's all right for you. You're young and you can get yourself another husband. But sometimes if we say that sort of thing, it's not always a helpful thing to say it's all right for you because it's trying to say I'm actually unique in what I'm going through and you're not quite having it so bad with what I am. So it's good if we don't actually let out our sadness and our loss. It's like one of the presidents of America said, the buck stops here. Sometimes what we experience, whilst it's good to share it, but not to pass a negative thing on to someone else. And by God's grace and with his help, we don't need to do that. What God has given us. We can trust him that he will help. She was singled by death, but did not demand a right of relationship to support her own needs. But in fact, released her daughters-in-law to pursue their own lives. I've seen the way that uh, mother-in-laws act sometimes and they try to they almost try to take the attention that the in-law has for their spouse. Say, Let's take, for example, a son-in-law. Try and get, take the, the interest of the son-in-law away from the wife for a moment just to look at them. You know? Really, I'm the most special matriarch in all this situation. You know? And in a sense, underneath, it's, it's, it's the spirit which is not of God. is trying to get the attention to me. And we all try to do that one way or another sometimes by the things we say, name-dropping and stuff like that. But what it's trying to do, is trying to get take someone's attention off of something else and someone else and attract it to me. We're not ignorant of his evil schemes. <laughs> it's amazing the way that Satan can work sometimes. Taking the simplest of situations and making mountains out of molehills, mole yes. Sometimes we just have to lay the thing down. God, you be blessed. Lord, help me over this situation. She was singled by death, but did not demand a right of relationship to support her own needs. And she was a woman in great need. In actual fact, the the only hope that she could have was with Ruth, who she said, and Orpah, you go, go back, my dears, go back. Don't stay with me, I'm a lost cause. I will only be a burden to you. Go back, have your freedom. And she released them from her. But the grace of God came into play, didn't he? And I need to act and finish quickly. She was reduced to living by faith as the supply had run out. Her legitimate support as a widow had gone in a strange land. Sometimes God may test the foundation of our lives and the faith we profess, that he may be known as the most reliable supplier to our needs, whatever they may be. When there is an element of dissatisfaction in our lives that has to be boosted by other stuff, when there is an ambition which is out of sync with the best that God wants for me, when there is a worry about an issue or the future that dominates thinking hours and interferes with my peace with God. Redemption. It's a good old biblical word. We use it for describing what God in Jesus has done for us. But it is a word that references a mighty, powerful act with creative power God, who is right at this very time redeeming this whole mess we're in. And who knows, maybe even the volcano is part of that. We don't know. Because when in Romans it says all things work together for good, and the Jewish understanding of that, it's God is releasing his creative the power that we saw in creation into your situation. That's amazing you know, God who spoke and things came into being, he's actually releasing that into your situation to redeem it, to bring it about, to make good out of that. God who counsels his people, the church, to embrace all the qualities of the kingdom life and be redemptive in our approach to situation. Be redeemers. Sometimes we get stuck. I had my daughter's father-in-law say the other day, problems are for solving, and I thought, yeah that sometimes they throw us apart, don't they? How often do we actually get stuck into a problem and say, let's solve this together. Let's redeem the situation. Let's make something of it. Let's do some good. And so the verse that I'm going to finish with is, comes from Proverbs 3, 5-6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And he will direct your paths. Amen. Thank you, Father. Okay, we have coffee in a minute. I'm just going to pray before we do that. Father, help us to be a people of God. Help us, Lord, not to move out from under the covering, out of the place that you want us to be. Lord, satisfy our hearts with the goodness that you give us through Jesus. Lord, give us good things. Help us to ignore the awful things in a sense that we don't want to take on something that's going to hurt anybody else or hurt our lives with you. Help us, Lord, to trust in you with all of our heart and not part of it. Help us not to go to our own understanding of things first or what we just think in our mind, but help us to go to the word of God and look for your understanding. Help us to acknowledge you, Lord, even when we go on holiday. Lord, and when we're sitting down in the chair relaxing, help us to acknowledge you. Lord, we look to you for our future. Direct our paths as a church. Direct our paths as individuals. Lord, will you redeem things that have been bad and awful in our lives. In Jesus' name. Coffee?